Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. I would like to introduce you to my guest for today. He's Mr. John Kane Berman, and uh, John is a graduate of Wits and Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar and is a former CEO of the IRR. Prior to that, he spent 10 years in journalism, where he was assist- senior assistant editor of the Financial Mail and South African correspondent for numerous foreign papers. He's the author of several books on South African politics, as well as having published his memoirs. Good morning, John. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. John, I'd like to read something to you and get your response to this. It comes from The Economist of this morning, and it goes as follows. The scheduled ending for the COP26 came and went on Friday with no final decision in sight. Countries are still haggling over a possible commitment to phase out coal and fossil fuel subsidies, financing for those suffering most from climate change, a framework for a global carbon market, and a way to judge whether countries are meeting their targets. Are you surprised at this uh, rather fuzzy outcome? No, I'm rather pleased because I think COP26 is really a case of grandstanding and virtue signaling. And I think that the assumptions on which the whole great global warming climate catastrophe scare is based are very, very dubious indeed. So I'm rather pleased that the conference has not achieved anything as much as its promoters wanted it to achieve, particularly in not reaching any agreement on getting rid of coal. They talk about an agreement to phase down coal. Well, that can mean almost anything. Mm. And it's really a victory for the Indians and the Chinese and various other countries that are not prepared to bow to the Western net zero ideology at the cost of lowering their rates of economic growth and therefore pushing back the day in which they can liberate their people from poverty. The other point I would make is that if the rich countries, the British and the Americans, the Germans and so on, really believed that third world countries were threatened by catastrophic disasters, floods, sinking islands, droughts, famines, that sort of thing. Well, they should come up with the money now in order to help those countries build dams, dikes and make themselves resistant to the catastrophe that is supposedly coming their way. Why are they waiting in making the funding available if they think that the catastrophe is imminent any day now? The whole thing is nonsensical and extremely hypocritical. Hypocritical, hypocritical. Would you categorize the Western obsession with with climate change and and its supposedly catastrophic consequences as a sort of first world conceit? I mean, it doesn't appear from what you've said that countries that are going that are trying to improve their growth um, are likely to benefit in any way, pretty much whatsoever. They're not going to benefit at all if they cart out of this new Western ideology, uh, whether it's an ideology, a religion, whatever. These countries got rich using fossil fuels. They now want to deny to emerging markets, much poorer countries, the developing world, the very tool that they used in order to lift their people out of poverty and into a state where they can enjoy the very, very high living standards that are characteristic of most of Europe 
and North America today. It almost strikes having a Luddite quality, the desire to return to a pre-industrial world because they live in a highly industrial world, so they they have a comfort in doing so, and they don't appear to have any faith or much faith in man's ability to innovate, to deal with with the problems that we face or that could occur. Do I have them have assessed them correctly in this regard? Well, I don't think there are any problems that cannot be dealt with. I don't think there's any evidence that the world is heating up in a dangerous kind of way. Uh, there's no evidence that uh, fossil fuels, which are increasing in the atmosphere, the level of carbon dioxide, there's no evidence that uh, increasing levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere are causing global warming. And global warming, which actually isn't happening, it stopped about 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, is actually a better thing than global cooling. More people die when temperatures drop than when they rise. The whole thing is scientifically questionable, if not nonsensical. Read one commentator saying that there's a tendency to confuse climate change with weather. And in that respect, things like so-called sort of extreme event, weather events are being used as a sign that climate change or that the climate crisis is happening. Are we looking at uh, just complete irrationality in this regard or or confusing the one with the other because it has such a strong emotional pull? Well, I don't know if it's confusion so much as deliberate obfuscation. There is no evidence whatsoever that the world is facing more serious climatic events than it has throughout history. Floods, droughts, disasters of one kind or another, hurricanes, cyclones, rising sea levels, falling sea levels, melting ice caps, freezing ice caps. These are phenomena that have been present in the world for millions of years. There's no reason to believe that anything out of the ordinary is happening. And if you look at the, not so much the theories, but at the observed data, recorded data about wildfires, for example, that, that is data such be, such data being available for the last uh, hundred years at least, there were far more wildfires in the US in places like California in the 1930s than there are today. So there's no evidence that anything unusual is happening. The climate in the world has never, ever been stable, and it never, ever will be stable, no matter what people decide to do in Glasgow or the next conference in Cairo or wherever it might be. There seems to be a sort of conceit that somehow man, mankind, humans, can do more about the weather, control it more, control the climate, and and, and I think it's, 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 it's a complete failure to see Pardon the expression to see the wood for the trees. What, what, like your comment on this one, one of the things is in the past two years, we've seen countries such as Germany, which was, had significant use of nuclear power as a result of pressure from the Green Party and other factors. The, the power plants have been shut down. It's relied on its renewable energies such as solar and wind which, of course, are unreliable. And as a consequence, they've had to buy nuclear energy from France and dirty coal energy from Poland. This doesn't this doesn't seem to have made any impact on, on the way that th- these issues are viewed in the West. 
the fact that renewables just cannot cannot make up for the more reliable forms of energy. Well, of course they can't, but possibly one will begin to see a necessary backlash against the sort of nonsense we are seeing rising energy prices in the UK, in the US and other countries. The biggest hypocrite of the lot, of course, is Joe Biden, who is now begging OPEC and other oil producers to make more oil available, where oil is a, is a fossil fuel, which he supposedly wants to phase out. Mm. I think eventually, when electorates in the US and the UK and elsewhere begin to appreciate the real consequences for themselves, their standards of living, they are going to start a backlash against this kind of disastrous energy policy, which pushes up prices. They're going to be prohibited in due course from buying cars with internal combustion engines. In the UK, they're going to install, they're going to have to install heat pumps, which are hideously expensive and not nearly as efficient as traditional sources of heating your home. One's eventually going to get some sort of backlash. What's happening at the moment is that the politicians are mouthing platitudes about net zero, about this, that, and the next thing. They're not actually talking the truth to their electorates about the cost of all of these policies. A couple of people have observed that this is essentially almost a a process of class warfare. The the middle classes, the upper middle classes who've benefited from all the technology that that have been available to humankind in the last 150 years, looking on sort of blindly, but the the working classes and the poor cannot afford the changes that, that the middle classes want. And surely these are going to be the people who are going to increasingly or perhaps leaving that backlash? Well, certainly the working class and poorer people and unemployed people are going to uh, suffer. But the middle classes are also going to revolt because they are going to find that the the price of transport becomes very much more expensive with the introduction of uh, what are they called electric cars. Mm. They're going to have to become increasingly reliant on energy that is generated by solar and wind, which, as you've pointed out earlier in this interview, are unreliable. The middle classes, in due course, I suspect, are going to revolt against rising prices of energy and the greater inconvenience of having to rely on unreliable sources of energy when they've taken for granted reliable cheap and abundant sources of energy for years and years and years. It's one of the great achievements Mm. of modern civilization. It's now being removed, and the middle classes are not going to tolerate it indefinitely when it starts hitting them in the pocket. That is my hope, at any rate, that you'll get some sort of center-right backlash against all of this. Mm. I read quite an interesting comment on the fact that the the Green movement has generally said that renewable energy uh, renewable forms of energy as will create they you know will create there will be jobs they've essentially surmised that the, the people who work in the oil industry will switch switch from the one to the other it being pointed out that that this is the, the jobs are not the same the amount of training that some people need some people won't be able to train for it and in any event there will be far fewer jobs so 
uh, and I think in America they put the figure at uh, at, at a million at a million people. The, this doesn't seem to have had any effect on the uh, on on the political classes at all. I would have thought this is at the dangers that you've raised for the political classes if they don't pay attention. Well, I hope that they will face the backlash I'm talking about. But you know, the these you can think up any figure you like and say that's the number of green jobs that are going to be created. What counts, of course, as far as jobs are concerned, is the net position. How many are lost in coal and how many are gained in manufacturing windmills and so on. But the other important point is that a lot of these green jobs are not in England or America. They're in China, Mm. which is a major source of solar panels and wind turbines. I think that at the end of the day, the jobs that are going to be uh, in great demand are the jobs in nuclear, because one of the great ironies of this thing is that if you are anti-fossil fuels and you discover, as we all will discover in due course, that renewable or so-called renewable energy is very costly and unreliable, that leaves one source of energy left, which is nuclear. Mm. And part of the whole Greenpeace movement, Greens in various countries, is very anti-nuclear. This thing may have an ironical consequence in the end that the major beneficiaries are going to be the manufacturers of small modular nuclear reactors, such as are of use in uh, in France on a very large scale, for yeah. example. Well, not modular, but yeah. large-scale yeah. nuclear reactors. But that is the way the world is going to have to go if it doesn't want to use fossil fuels and it finds out that renewables aren't very reliable. Nuclear is the answer, and the Greens will uh, have themselves to thank for that. I've almost got the impression that the opposition to nuclear is just one that envisages a sort of Hiroshima or uh, Yokohama, you know, those those, those sort of terrible moments without taking into consideration that Nuclear fuel for energy is very different to nuclear, uh, to nuclear fuel for, for, war, for warfare purposes. One of the things you'd written about both in advance of COP, uh, COP26 and once it, once it had been held is what the Western countries would be offering South Africa to decarbonize. Now, we seem to be doing a good job of decarbonizing anyway in the, in the way in which ESCOM has been maintained and, and new, new coal stations have been built. But, what is your, would you tell us what your view is on the 18 billion rand that has been promised to South Africa and the conditions that are likely to go with, that will go with it and whether it will amount to anything? Well, the money that has been agreed upon is, I think, 8.5 billion dollars. It's 131 billion rand. I think it's a bribe. We are being asked to speed up the closure of our admittedly aging coal-fired power stations, I think we would be absolutely crazy to do so because we've got unreliable energy already and we don't want to make a bad situation worse by closing down these power stations. It would be much more logical for Eskom to sell off these coal-fired power stations to the private sector and let them run them for as long as they can produce any kind of energy. This country is in a desperate situation from an energy point of view, and it's totally cynical 
of the British, the Europeans, the Americans, the French and the Germans and all the others to try and get us to make our energy situation even worse than it already is. It's it's a kind of arrogant eco-imperialism mm. that is quite, in my view, quite wicked to expect South Africa to go along with when our situation is as desperate as it is. Do you think it was literally the sort of cheap shot of hope of, of the Western, of the Western countries hoping to have something to come out of COP26? Because you don't have to know much about this country to know about its lack of growth and its, its energy, uh, scarce situation. Well, I think, you know, they, they needed something to, uh, a rabbit to pull out of the hat in Glasgow. And this is, this is one of the rabbits. Um, it's, it's wicked. It's wicked. There's no other word for it. And it's naive and reckless and irresponsible for South Africa to accept it. But of course, uh, it's going to be a very long time before any of that money flows. Mm. If it flows at all, because everybody, even, even the British and the Americans and the Europeans by now should have realized that a huge amount of that money would be stolen some way or another by the ANC or some of its business and other allies. And, and I would have thought that to really effectively make any transition that's meaningful, if it's possible, the, 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 the $8 billion just wouldn't begin to touch it. Well, it's nonsense. I mean, you know, what, what Eskom should do is flog off the power stations, uh, as I've said. That would help it to reduce its own debt. But for South Africa to start spending money uh, replacing uh, power stations, which work even in their present state, more reliably than we can expect renewable energy to work, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Can you speculate on what Cyril Ramaphosa's response is to having received this apparent largesse? No idea what Cyril's response is. I mean, he's put out statements saying how wonderful it is, but he's, you know, Cyril is full of fantasies. Mm. Green jobs, green hydrogen, bullet trains, magic cities. I mean, he He's full of nonsense. He doesn't understand anything about how an economy works. He doesn't understand anything about green jobs or green hydrogen or any other kind of jobs for that matter. So, I mean, he'll spout what a great achievement it is, but it's completely meaningless. It's hot air. The man is very, very limited in his understanding of anything. Yeah, and I've, I've written a few times, a few times on that and, uh, uh it's, it's taken a, Unfortunately, long time for a lot of people to grasp the fact that this this is the nature of our nature of our president. Just just to look at going back to China and the fact that, uh, as I understand the figures, China now accounts for twenty eight percent of global emissions of carbon dioxide, as against twenty three percent for the U.S. and the European Union combined. Surely, I mean, I know that there's been some sort of agreement of of, of kind between. America and, and China to, to reduce carbon, but I can't imagine that China is going to do anything that would jeopardize its ability for its uh, economy to grow. I have no doubt you're right. China is not going to jeopardize its growth. It's going to make all sorts of promises, which it will fulfill in due course, uh, once it 
it's achieved the levels of growth and development that it aspires to. But let's just remember one thing. Carbon dioxide has been maligned around the world, including by the American Federal Supreme Court, as causing pollution. Mm. It is complete nonsense. Carbon dioxide is not a pollutant. There are serious problems of pollution in the world. They arise from nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide, Mm -hmm. some of them arising from the burning of coal. Carbon dioxide has been defamed. Mm. It's not a pollutant. And if you want people to seriously contemplate cleaning up uh, parts of the planet that are polluted, let's talk seriously about real pollutants, Mm. not this obsession, this fixation with carbon dioxide, which is nothing of the kind. Mm. There would be no plant growth in the world with I was, I, carbon dioxide. I, I, was, I was going to come to that, uh, ask exactly that question, because I think at COP26, they talked about the, the drive to, re, to, to reforest parts of the world where deforestation had occurred. And uh, without carbon dioxide, you, you're not going to reforest anything. If, 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 the, if the plant world cannot absorb and use the Carbon, any carbon dioxide available to uh, to, ger- to generate oxygen. Um, it, again, it seems to be it, it, the two, there's just absolutely no meeting of any rationality on on that score. There's no rationality. The so-called science on which this is based is is completely nonsensical. If you want to deal with pollution, let's define what causes pollution. Smoke burning from coal, one of the things. And let's stop demonizing carbon dioxide. Then we can have a serious conversation about the major problem of pollution, which is bigger in some countries, mm. largely a bigger problem in poorer countries than in rich countries that can afford to clean up their mm. atmospheres. That's exactly the point. And uh, as I'm just left with, would one call it the uh, soft bigotry of low expectations, that somehow what happens in the Western world is one thing and what happens in the developing world is another. And if, the, if it makes no sense to demand of the developing world what you've got in the Western world, it really doesn't worry um, the Western world at all. I don't think it does worry them. Uh, I think we're passing through an extraordinary period in the intellectual history of the world when media elites and political elites buy into this nonsense, this nonsensical scare. And don't forget that millions of people, the the figures have been published by uh, various institutions, I don't remember them exactly, billions of people around the world, including this country, die because they have to burn wood and dung and other noxious fuels inside their huts or their homes. Mm. Internal pollution. That's a major killer of people. And the only way to get rid of that threat to life is electricity. And you must make the electricity available as cheaply as you possibly can. That's the real problem of, of uh, a threat to life is the internal pollution that happens from smoke in people's houses where there's no electricity. And the people in the West that take for granted 
that they can get electricity by flicking a switch just don't pay any attention to this at all. Mm. Uh, It just confirms my view, as I've stated Mm -hmm. earlier, that this whole thing is wicked. Mm. It's inhuman. Mm. It inflicts disasters on people in poor countries. Mm. That is inhuman, Sarah. Mm. And and just lastly, uh, comment on the fact that you're starting to get more and more reports of seemingly well-educated, skilled people deciding not to have children because they are so terrified by the so-called climate climate crisis or climate catastrophe. Surely that's, that's absolutely an absurd response to something you cannot foretell with any, with any certainty. Well, you can foretell with certainty that uh, a warming world, if that's what we're getting, is a good thing. Um, you can... Certainly foretell with certainty that uh, people in rich countries and many people in poor countries as well have the ingenuity and the technical ability to take steps to reduce the negative impacts of droughts and floods and rising sea levels and and high cyclones and all those sorts of things that have plagued people throughout history. The Dutch started building dikes hundreds of years ago. Mm. People have the ability to cope with these uh, threats, whether they are new threats or old threats, it doesn't matter. People know how to cope with them. And what the rich world should be doing is helping the poor world, poor world to finance the dams and the infrastructure necessary to withstand the inevitable disasters that are going to happen, which which can be overcome, as they have very, very largely been overcome in most of the world anyway, especially the richer countries. So this idea of, of people uh, not wanting to have children, they've allowed themselves to be terrified out of their wits by a child. <laughs> Meta Thunberg and all the acolytes that uh to her, including Boris Johnson, Joe Biden, yes. the whole gang of them, the UN, the World Economic Forum, the whole lot. It's absurd. It's nonsense. That's why I said we're living through an extraordinary period in the intellectual history of the world where people believe, large numbers of people believe in absolute nonsense. Yeah, maybe that, that's an indication of what some of the frailties of the, of the, of, of the safe, the Western world. John, thank you very, very much for being on this morning and uh, much, much appreciated. Good. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks, Sarah.